Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Moore's Law, the observation that the number of transistors on a microchip doubles every two years, has fueled rapid computing gains to the mid-20th century. But will this law last forever? Today's guest, Neil Thompson, thinks the end is near. I've invited Neil on the podcast to explain why Moore's Law may be coming to an end and what that means for productivity growth and continued innovation. Neil is an innovation scholar in the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's also a research scientist at the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Let's start with a, uh, a basic question. What is Moore's Law, and what does the world look like today if it didn't exist? So Moore's Law is an incredibly important trend, um, which is sort of used to talk about broadly all of the improvement in computing we've had in the last five, five or six decades. The actual origins of it, uh, though, come from um, basically the miniaturization of computer chips and the elements that are on computer chips. And it was kind of a neat moment where Richard Feynman, um, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, gave the speech uh, back in 1959. And he said, this was, by the way, this was an after dinner speech, if you believe it. This was like, you know, you were at a conference and someone was just saying, hey, by the way, like, why don't you say a few remarks? And in this talk, he says, okay, let me, let me tell you about nanotechnology because we're doing all these things in the sort of regular world. And I think we could just keep miniaturizing stuff all the way down to the point where it's just a you know, few atoms. And he said that about computers, right? He said, we can make them and these parts will be really small, like 10 or hundred atoms big. And this was a pretty remarkable thing that he said, because um, you know, it's a little hard, I think, to get the sense of how big the difference is between like our everyday lives and that many atoms. But if you sort of, it's roughly proportional to saying, if you were building things the size of the earth and you're like, you know what? I think we could build that the size of a tennis ball. Okay, so this is a really, and, and that really laid out a roadmap for us as we improved our technology to say we could keep miniaturizing. And it turned out as we did that, we were able to put more transistors on our chip, which meant we could do more and we could run our chips faster. And, you know, a huge amount of the revolution we've had in IT all really comes from this, right? If we were still using the computers back in those early days, we really could not be doing almost anything that we're doing today. So it has had an enormous effect on society. Um, and yeah, it's really been very transformational. I'm, I'm old enough that I'm pretty sure I may have watched some sort of uh, film strip or something in school about computers. Uh, and they were still pretty big, giant, you know, monolithic computers with punch cards and, and, thing, and things like that. So maybe we'd still be in that world. I don't know. I, I remember those moments too. My mother used to do some of her research with, with a computer and she'd come back with punch extra punch cards, like when they were getting getting rid of the computer and we had these things as our notepads. If I did a, a, a news search on Moore's Law, I would find many stories over many years about the end of Moore's Law. Have all those reports of its death been greatly exaggerated? Or are we finally there? Yeah. 
so yes, you're absolutely right. You can go back decades and find people saying, well, this is gonna be a problem, but this is gonna be a problem. And you know, actually it's a real credit to the technologists and engineers that they were able to push through that and, and get past it. But since 2004, what is clear is we've lost many of the benefits of Moore's law. Okay, so let me make the distinction here because when Gordon Moore actually made up, made up this law, it was really about the number of transistors you could fit on a chip, which is a very specific like technical thing about what you can do. But what it translated to generally was this incredible speed up in, in the capacity of our chips and, what we, and how fast we could run them. And so we sort of have sort of taken to calling all of those things Moore's law, but in practice, actually in 2004, 2005, we lost, I think, one of the most important parts of that, which is the speed up on our chips, right? So chips at that point were about three gigahertz. The chips in your computer today are about three gigahertz. Um, and so we've really plateaued, whereas before that we were improving it exponentially. So that we really have lost a lot of it already. It's also very clear that we are, you know, pretty close to the end, even in the sort of being able to get more transistors on. And that's not just me saying that, like the people who designed the roadmaps to figure out like what are the technology that we need to put together in order to make the next generation of Moore's law happen, right? Those folks have already said, whoa, 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 that, that can't be the path anymore. Um, so it's, you know, it's no longer just lone voices in the cold saying it's gonna end. Now it's a lot of the community. And is speed and putting the number of transistors on a chip, those are two different things. I mean, how are they different? Yeah. So you know, I think a useful way to think about this is to think about that miniaturization that Feynman had proposed, right? So every time you shrink those transistors, you know, you can fit more on a chip and that's just geometry, right? We know that if we sort of taken up less space, you can fit more on. So that that's really good. And that allows you to do have things like more memory, for example, on your, on your chip. And so if you think about like cache, that may be something people see when they're buying their computers, those, the size of caches have been going up a lot over time. So, so that's really good. But the second, the, the speed of your computer is also based on sort of like how many operations you can do in one second, right? So you sort of like, you do one thing and then you do the next thing and you do the next thing. And one of the things that modern computers are really good at is doing things way, way faster than we can, right? So if you think about like our clock being one second, right? They can do like 3 billion things <laughs> in that one second, right? I, you know, 3 billion sort of sets of operations. So um, yeah, so that's, it's enormously fast, but it turns out that also came from the miniaturization that, that was happening with Moore's law because um, the limit to running chips faster is always that as you run them faster, they produce more heat. And the problem is if you produce a lot of uh, heat, you will eventually melt the chip, right? So there's a limit to how fast you can sort of toggle it up to be able to run it faster. And you hit that limit um, and then you stop. And the nice thing is as we miniaturized, it turns out we were able to run them faster, right? They, they produced less heat, because they were smaller. And so you could turn up the speed a little bit and you just kept being able to do that over and over again until we hit this limit in 2004 and 2005. I read a lot about the sort of downshift in productivity growth in the United States and in other countries starting in the 70s. And then we sort of had this kind of blip up in the, in, in the late 90s and early 2000s. So this downshift and people can debate how productivity is being properly measured happened at the same time as this amazing improvement in chip performance and this the capabilities of computers. Uh, do we know to what extent Moore's law contributed to productivity growth over the past half century? Is there, do you happen to know if there's a rough estimate? Yeah, so um, 
you know, I think that there are there's sort of two two ways to answer that question. There's the sort of overall IT, you know, what what macroeconomists say the effect that IT is having on productivity, and you know, by one estimate, since the 1970s, about a third of all labor productivity improvements have come from improvements in IT. So, okay, that that sort of gives you sort of one one version of this. Right. Um, but it's very hard in, in a lot of ways to, to measure it because Moore's law has been a pretty stable thing over time and that tends to be a hard thing for economists to measure. Um, but in some of the work that I did as part of my dissertation work, you know, I can actually show, for example, that um, in this 2004, 2005 era where we lose the speed up, right? It turns out a whole bunch of firms are hurt by that. Their productivities do not rise as fast as a result of this. And so we definitely can see these effects coming in. And you know, my, uh, myself and my group, the stuff that we work on, a lot of this is trying to get a much better estimate of this because we think this is actually a pretty crucial question because we may have actually been systematically underestimating the effect that IT has had and Moore's law has had on the economy. Um, if we've had this struggle of measured productivity growth, at least currently measured with Moore's law, how concerned should I be about productivity growth, which is pretty important for raising living standards going forward with Moore's law at an end. Yeah, so I, I would say, like, I am worried about this. I am absolutely worried about this. Um, and, you know, the way I think of this is we, we've had, if you look across society and you think of general productivity improvements, you're talking, you know, one or 2% per year, kind of as the, as the, how we make things better over time. And at its peak, the improvement that we were making in our chips was like 52% per year. So it was vastly faster, and that really had sort of spillover effects on everybody else. Everyone else could say, oh, well, you know, let me use computers to do this additional thing and you know, make my part of the economy more productive as well. And uh, Dale Jorgensen at Harvard has done some nice work sort of splitting that out and seeing, um, seeing how important it is. And so, um, and then as we get to the end, it's the question is like, well, what, where do we go from here if, if this, is, this sort of engine has been slowing down? And of course, there are some candidates, right? People talk about um, artificial intelligence and are we gonna be able to use that? Our quantum computing, are we gonna be able to use that and some of these other things? And the question is, you know, do these things have the legs in the same way that Moore's law has had? And um, you know, I think it, it's not at all clear that I, any of them will be able to sort of take up that mantle in the way that Moore's law ha ha has done, particularly over so many decades. Computers start out at the very beginning as a as a very specific technology uh, developed for use in, in war. And then it became a, what economists call a general purpose technology. And as you've written, it's now transitioning sort of back into a more specific technology where computer and chips become more special purpose. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, you know, maybe a way to think about this is like a Swiss army knife versus like, uh, you know, having a whole toolkit full of like hammers and uh, screwdrivers and all those kind of things, right? So you could say, well, um, you know, should I, if I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make this decision, should I invest in, you know, a Swiss Army knife or should I buy a screwdriver and all those kind of things? And clearly, you know, I think, you know, in my toolbox and I'm sure in yours, we have the full set of things, right? We don't, we don't just have the Swiss Army knife. And the reason that's true is because obviously if you specialize the, your tool for one particular thing, it does, it does that thing better. But the remarkable thing about, you know, what we got when, with these sort of general purpose chips, which is the CPUs, right? What we got with these over time was they got better so fast 
that the choice was more like, well, do I want to buy a screwdriver today or do I want to buy you know, a new Swiss Army knife four years from now that's going to be vastly, vastly better? And so it was sort of, we sort of kept on that path, but it only works. That, that trade-off is only worth doing as long as the Swiss Army knife is getting better fast enough, right? As long as the CPU is getting better fast enough. And what we've seen is a real breakdown in that, right? That is, as this slows down, we've gone from that 52% that I told you before as the, the rate of growth, you know, by one measure, we're now down to like 3.5% per year improvement. Um, and so at, at that level, it's just, you, you're much better off saying, I'm, I'm gonna get the screwdriver myself. Right? And we already see lots and lots of firms doing this. So, you know, Google is building their own chips. Amazon is building their own chips. Tesla is building their own chips. Lots of people are going down this road to build a specialized chip that is right for exactly what they want to do, not the one that we can, we are all sort of on the same platform for. One, what do you mean by AI? And then what is the impact, I guess, uh, of a more specialized chip? Yeah, so I, I think you're you're so right to point us out. Like, like, let's talk about what we mean by AI, right? Because people mean everything from artificial general intelligence, right? Like, um, which obviously has a whole bunch of particular implications to, I would say, sort of a catch-all phrase where almost everything from data science these days, you know, gets wrapped in this, this um, blanket of artificial intelligence. Um, you know, certainly within the last 10 years, the thing that has really changed remarkably markedly is deep learning in, in particular. And for those in your audience who haven't seen this, I mean, um, you know, this used to be called neural networks, right? This has existed back since the 50s. Um, and it was just when we didn't have very many computing, much computing power, they were kind of small and they didn't have very many layers, um, which is sort of uh, one of the ways that people think about them. And as they, as we got more computing power, they got deeper, which is why we call them deep neural networks now. So that's, that's sort of how we get there. That's really where the revolution has been in the last 10 years. Um, and at the cutting edge, you know, all of the sort of models that are uh, beating records and stuff, they're, they're almost all deep learning models. And does the slowing of Moore's laws and the moving to more specialized chips, does that have any impact on the, on the progress of deep learning? Yeah, so, I mean, what you can see is that um, when you have something like deep learning, where you where it's really you know it's it's clear that there's potential here. People have invested in building these specialized chips, and so people may have heard of GPUs, graphics processing units, um, but people have built even more specialized. So Google has their own tensor processing unit, TPU. Um, so these sort of ever more specialized things are sort of taking us down this road of becoming more and more efficient at that particular thing. And you know, so the good news about that is that indeed you get a, a big performance gain. So one of the results that NVIDIA pointed out not too long ago was that they could get about 100x improvement um, from, from the specialization that they were doing. So that's, you know, on one hand, pretty great. On the other hand, that's not at all big compared to the sweep of Moore's law, right? And so you were asking, so should I not be worried? And I think the answer is you should be worried because specialization gives you that one time gain Right? And maybe like incremental, maybe you can build the screwdriver ever a little bit better, but you run out of steam pretty quickly, whereas Moore's Law had a much, much more legs and many more decades of um, improvement that it could offer. Do computer scientists think there's a lot more progress to be made in deep learning? Or do they think it's already sort of approaching a point of exhaustion and they're trying to think of the next thing? So I think there are people in both camps on that. Right? I think that there are uh, lots of folks that are still excited by sort of all the progress we're making here. And, and I think they have you know, some real things they can point to, right? So the one that I'm you know, particularly excited about recently is AlphaFold, 
which is this ability to model protein folding uh, with deep learning. And that's a, just, it's a remarkable achievement, right? It's a problem that we've struggled with for a long time, and it has a lot of benefits for how we do uh, medicine in the future. So I think, you know, that's a, there's a real promise there. Um, and so I, you know, they can say that that's great, lot, lots to be done there. At the same time, we do see us starting to run into limits of how we implement these things, right? So we can run into times where the sort of inherent inefficiency of deep learning, which we can talk about if, if you're interested in, but that sort of inherent inefficiency that comes with using deep learning comes with a very high computational price. And so you see people starting to say, well, do I really want to pay that price? Uh, so one, one example that we saw very closely, we did a, a MBA case on this where a supermarket had said, I'm really interested in uh, using deep learning to predict the demand for my products, right? And of course that matters a lot for a supermarket because they wanna know how much to stock on the shelves and the like. And it turns out that they did it, they got a real improvement in performance, but for many of the products that they put on their shelves, it was not economically worth it to run that model. The cost, the computational cost of just running it overshadowed that. Um, and so I think that, you know, we're, we, as I say, I think we're seeing both of them and we're seeing those, those second group of folks saying, well, maybe I'll use deep learning in some places, but in other places I won't, or maybe in some places I'll try and adapt it so that it can become more efficient. Is there a new sort of chip technology that would return us to, you know, these massive gains and return us to uh, a, sort of a general purpose technology? Yeah, so, so none that we know yet. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, me too, me too. <laughs> so there, there are candidates, right? So there are, um, you know, people have proposed like architectural changes in the way we do our switches that might make things more efficient. That, I think there's some possibility there, although again, probably not the like decades and decades of Moore's law. People have talked about things like optical computing. So, you know, right now we have sort of wires and electrons doing our calculations. Maybe we could use light and photons to do it. That, that seems like that might be interesting, particularly for some kinds of calculations. Then there are other things like quantum computing, um, which I think many people have the sense of like quantum computing is just like the next generation of computing. I don't, I actually don't think that's right. I think it's more like a different kind of specializer. So it's like, we're gonna have our main computers and we're still gonna have them at the, in, the, in the future. But then on the side, we'll say, well, for a certain subset of problems, quantum computers can do really well. And so we use the quantum computers for those. Um, so I think that's sort of what the landscape looks like right now. But as I say, I don't think there are any of these that really look like they're going to be the next general purpose technology for the moment. How hard is it to sort of say like, oh, now we want to make every these things in the United States. Um, I think some people think it's just, you know, you take apart a factory in one place, you move it to the United States. It sounds like it would be hard, harder than I think many politicians think. Yeah, so it really depends on how cutting edge you want your, your chips to be. So, you know, I was talking before about that miniaturization that's going on. And so the sort of the smaller you get, the harder it gets, right? The closer you're getting to like moving around individual atoms and um, things like that. And so, um, and so if you want to be sort of away from the cutting edge, actually, there are lots of places that can build that. And so that, that is sort of, um, you know, more broadly uh, available technology. Neil, I want us, I want America to be on the cutting edge, Neil. I want <laughs> well, us to be on the yes, cutting edge. I, I, I don't blame you. Yeah. And so the problem with that is building one of those factories these days costs like, you know, 20, $22 billion. Um, so it, it's a big deal. It's really hard. You need very cutting edge equipment to do it. 
Um, and so that's the, the challenge there is that we used to have, you know, we probably did not worry about this as much in the past because there used to be 25 different companies, all of whom were on the frontier of building chips. And as these factories have become more and more expensive over time, what we we're down to is now basically three different companies that produce these cutting edge chips. Um, so it is, it is very hard. There are not very many folks that do it at the cutting edge, but it certainly is important, um, you know, that we have good, good production facilities and that we know that they can be secure. Absolutely. Neil, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.